Section 29 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15, The Deposed Emperor, Part 1. Frederick was enthroned amidst a splendid court when the tidings of his deposition were brought to him at Turin. His eyes flashed anger and his voice trembled with a mighty rage. The Pope has deprived me of my crown, he exclaimed. Whence this presumption, this audacity? Bring hither my treasure chests. He opened them. Not one of my crowns but is here. He took out the crown of the empire, placed it upon his head, and rose from his throne. I hold my crown of God alone, he cried, and neither the Pope, the Council, nor the Devil shall rend it from me. Does he in his vulgar pride think that he can hurl me from the imperial dignity, me who am the chief prince of the world, yea, who am without an equal? I am now released from all respect. I am set free from all ties of love and peace. No longer need I keep my measure against this man. He straightway dispatched his envoys to all the kings and princes of Christendom. What may not all kings fear from the presumption of a pope like Innocent IV, he declared, in the proclamation which they bore? We grant the Pope's spiritual power, but we nowhere read that he may transfer empires at his pleasure or rob the kings of their realms. Is he set above all law and order? He has disregarded every legal form in his late proceedings against us and has taken hearsay to be fact. How long has the word of an emperor been so despicable as not to be heard against that of a priest? A very few unjust witnesses stood forth against us, such as the Bishop of Catana, the son of a traitor, or the Spanish prelates, who know nothing of the affairs of Italy, and were our enemies owing to the poisonous suborning practiced upon them. Not one of our German princes, who have the right of electing and deposing us, was at hand to confirm the sentence. The utter falsehood of all the charges made against us was proved by irrefragable documents, but were they all true, how would they justify the monstrous absurdity that the emperor, in whom dwells the supreme majesty, can be adjudged guilty of high treason? That he who has the source of law is above all law should be subject to law. To condemn him to temporal penalties who has but one superior in temporal things, God. We submit ourselves in spiritual things not only to the pope, but to the humblest priest. But alas, how unlike are the clergy of our day to those of the primitive church who led apostolic lives, imitating the humility of our Lord. Then they were visited by angels, then shone around them miracles, then did they heal the sick and raise the dead, and subdue princes by their holiness, not by arms. Now they are abandoned to this world and to drunkenness. Their religion is choked by their riches. It were a good work to relieve them from the noxious wealth. It is the interest of all princes to deprive them of these vain superfluities to compel them to salutary poverty. In the indicting of this letter, Frederick sacrificed his discretion to his wrath. In all his attacks upon the Pope, he had hitherto been careful to insist that his quarrel was not with the Church but with its head. Now, however, he included the whole body of the clergy in his resentment, declaimed against their unnatural wealth, 
and invited his brother monarchs to cooperate with him in reducing them to a more humble state. The inevitable result was that almost the whole body of the clergy of Christendom was henceforth bitterly hostile to him. Matthew Paris reflects this animosity in his chronicle and is highly indignant with the emperor. When the news reached the ears of the Christian kings of France and England, it appeared as clear as the light to them and their nobles that Frederick was endeavouring to destroy the liberty and nobility of the church, and by this very fact, rendering himself suspected of heresy, he had by his imprudence and shamelessness extinguished and destroyed every spark of good opinion and respect for his wisdom which had hitherto existed among the people. However, continues the sagacious monk, there was one grievous wound which pressed upon princes as well as prelates in a heavier degree than all others. This was that although the Emperor Frederick was deserving on many accounts of being humbled and deprived of all his honours, yet if by God's assistance the papal authority should irrevocably depose him, the Roman see abusing God's favour would in future be puffed up to such a degree of haughtiness and intolerable pride that it would on some light cause or other either depose Catholic chiefs, especially prelates, although innocent, or opprobriously threatened to depose them, and the Roman pontiffs, though sprung from plebeian blood, would with lofty talk and boasting exclaim, We have trodden down the most powerful Emperor Frederick, and who are you that rashly think to resist us? The Pope himself realized that this fear must be allayed. His answering manifesto opened in tones lofty enough but ended with an assurance that other monarchs were safe from such a sentence as he had passed upon the emperor. When the sick man, who has scorned milder remedies, is subjected to the knife and the cautery, he complains of the cruelty of the physician. When the evildoer, who has despised all warning, is at length punished, he arraigns the judge. But the physician only looks to the welfare of the sick man. The judge regards the crime, not the person of the criminal. The emperor doubts and denies that all things and all men are subject to the see of Rome, as if we, who are to judge angels, are not to give sentence on all earthly things. In the Old Testament, priests dethroned unworthy kings. How much more is the vicar of Christ justified in proceeding against him who expelled from the church as a heretic is already the portion of hell? Ignorant persons aver that Constantine first gave temporal power to the See of Rome. It was already bestowed by Christ himself as inalienable from its nature and absolutely unconditional. Christ founded not only a pontifical but a royal sovereignty. Constantine humbly gave up to the church an unlawful tyranny and received back from Christ's vicar a power divinely ordained for the punishment of the bad and the reward of the good. Peter was not bidden to throw away his sword, but to put it up into its sheath. By these words we see that it was to him that the sword belonged, and he it was who had the right of using it. The power of the sword lodged in the church is bestowed upon the emperor. This is typified in his coronation rite. The pope delivers to Caesar a sheathed sword which the prince draws and brandishes in token that he has received the power of using it. Let not other kings take alarm. Our authority over them is not the same as over the prince of the Romans who takes an oath to the Roman pontiff. Other kings have an hereditary right to their crowns, 
but the Roman emperor is chosen king by the free vote of the Germans and is afterwards promoted to the empire by us. It was the apostolic see that transferred the empire from the Greeks to the Germans. We have also special power with respect to the crown of Sicily, which is our own fief. Both parties in their letters courted the active assistance as well as the approval of foreign monarchs, but those princes were too wise or too cautious to plunge into the immitigable strife. If they aided the Pope, they helped to elevate a power which might afterwards crush them in turn. If they espoused the cause of the Emperor, they invoked the anathemas of the Pope. Better to stand apart from the fray, to devote themselves to the work which lay nearer to their hands, and to watch the two mighty forces rending each other in their mortal struggle. That struggle became more fierce and sanguinary now. The Emperor was fighting for his life. His heart was bitter with hatred of the foe who had so relentlessly pursued him. The taint of cruelty, which was never absent from the Hohenstaufen blood, gained the ascendancy. He became ruthless and terrible in his revenge. It became a war in which little quarter was asked or given, for the Pope, by asserting his power to break all treaties, left little room for mercy. A town might pledge its word to the Emperor to fulfill conditions and abstain from enmity, but of what use to talk of terms, when as soon as the Emperor should have withdrawn his armies, the Pope would absolve that city from its oath. Innocent sent his legates into every corner of the empire, bidding all faithful Christians to cast off the yoke of the man who was no longer their lord. They need have no fear. They were assured that the Pope would never make peace with the emperor and abandon them to his vengeance. No feigned penitence, no simulated humility shall so deceive us as that when he is cast down from the height of his imperial and royal dignity, he shall be restored to his throne. His sentence is absolutely irrevocable. His reprobation is the voice of God by his church. He is condemned and forever. His viper progeny are included in this eternal proscription. Whoever loves justice should rejoice that vengeance is thus declared against the common enemy and wash his hands in the blood of the transgressor. These last words seem directly to encourage the assassination of the emperor, and they soon bore fruit. Frederick, too, had his weapons to wield. He levied a tax of one-third upon the possessions of every cleric and religious community throughout his kingdom. He commanded that any ecclesiastic who, in obedience to the papal mandate, should refuse to celebrate mass or to perform other holy offices, should be banished and despoiled while all those who adhere to his cause should receive his special favor and protection. The friars must be cast out from the borders of his realm, since from them he could expect nothing but the most diligent enmity. In the September of this year, 1245, he left Turin, where the above enactments had been issued, and marched to Parma and Cremona. Both cities received him with apparently undiminished loyalty, though a plot against his life was discovered in which some few Parmesans were implicated. While in the north, he made another attempt to destroy the city of Brescia, but the Lombards turned out in force against him and held the fords of the river Ticinello, which he must cross to reach the town. He abandoned the campaign in November, but not before he had inflicted a heavy loss upon the rebels. His son Enzo captured 1,300 of their infantry and forty knights who had taken shelter in a strong castle. 
the winter months were spent in tuscany over which the emperor's natural son frederick of antioch was made imperial vicar a great danger called him back to the kingdom in the spring of 1246. The machinations of Innocent had raised up a powerful conspiracy against him, a conspiracy that aimed not merely at his possessions, but at his life. The plotters were many of them nobles of high position. Pandolf of Fazanella had been his vicar in Tuscany. Andrew of Cicala was the captain-general of Apulia. James of Mora, was the son of Frederick's chief justiciary. There were also Teobald Francesco, who had been Podesta of Parma, and William of San Severino and his sons. The plot was betrayed to Frederick by one of the conspirators, and for some time he refused to credit the tale. But the sudden flight of Pandolf and James from his court convinced him. They found refuge at Rome, and from there informed their fellow traitors who were daily expecting to hear that Frederick's murder had been accomplished, that the emperor had discovered their secret plans. End of section 29